One morning, I'm guessing it would have been in 1994 or 95, I showed up at True Tunes in downtown Wheaton, Illinois, and found none other than Rich Mullins sitting on a bench out in front of my store. He had been working with some students at Wheaton College to stage his Canticle of the Plains musical, but sometimes those students had to actually go to class, which left Rich bored, so he came over to hang out with me. On that beautiful morning, he brought his dulcimer over and sat on the bench to practice. The weather was perfect, so I propped the front door of the store open and allowed the breeze and the sound of Rich's hammering to waft in from the street. He was working on some pattern, playing it over and over, though. At one point, I teased him a little bit, asking him if if he really played the same riff on all of those songs. Was it kind of like the Appalachian version of ACDC or something? I think he threw something at me, but then he went back to his practicing. But after a good while, maybe a couple of hours, he came bounding into the store like a kid on Christmas morning. He held his hands out in front of his chest and came towards me. Look at this, look at this, we're rich, he said. In his hands were several coins. Someone had dropped them in his dulcimer case, assuming he was busking. He was elated. This is the best, he said. I I seriously don't know if I'd ever seen him more excited. He ran across the street to the little fast food restaurant and bought us each a cup of coffee. That was one of the best cups of coffee I ever had. A bit later, Rich was back out on the bench working on that dulcimer part when someone came into the store and looked at me urgently. Holy cow, this guy said, his eyes bugging. Did you know that Rich Mullins is playing in front of your store? Hi, I'm John J. Thompson, and welcome to part two of a special edition of the True Tunes podcast, in which we are taking a look back at one of the most enigmatic singer-songwriters I have ever known. On part one, we talked to several of Rich Mullins' ragamuffin bandmates, Jimmy Abegg, Aaron Smith, and Mark Robertson, and on this episode, we will hear from Rich's right-hand man, Mitch McVicker, and from Phil Madeira and Derek Webb, before diving into the previously unheard impromptu interview I recorded with Rich some 25 years ago. Rich Mullins was such an anomaly in so many ways. In fact, he may have been the most unlikely gospel music star of all time. He wasn't a great singer by any stretch of the imagination. He actively worked against just about every stereotype the growing Christian music industry wanted to see their celebrities inhabit. He wasn't glamorous or polished, and he didn't peddle a prosperity message or an escapist theology. He certainly didn't offer a style of music that was a Christian version of someone in the mainstream, but his songs were so unique, so honest, and so simple that none of that mattered. Rich Mullins offered an example of Jesus music, more in fellowship with the music from a generation earlier, and somehow, I felt, more accessible and authentic than much of what I was hearing out of that industry. To me, he has long represented the best of what contemporary Christian music can be, and there's more to that than the style or the sound. There was a fundamental difference in the way Rich approached his art and mission. We're going to listen for that in the conversation today. But first, let's take care of a little bit of housekeeping. All right, on with the show. Before we get to the Rich tape, I wanted to talk to two more of his contemporaries who had very different perspectives of him. Mitch McVicker was a protege of Rich's, they went to school together, and then Mitch became Rich's traveling companion right up to the end. Phil Madeira, on the other hand, was a seasoned Nashville professional who had played on at least one of Rich's albums in the 80s and then was tapped to tour with him in the 90s and to work with him in the studio on the Brothers Keeper record. 
Since his name came up both with the ragamuffins and when I talked to Rich himself, I wanted to get Phil's impressions as well. Mitch and I connected via a computer connection that we lost a couple of times. He has continued to write and record his own music, very much in the tradition of the music he was making with Rich 20 years ago. Here's a bit of my conversation with Mitch McVicker. Tell me real briefly what what your relationship with Rich was like and, and the time you were spending with him and uh, musically and personally and all that stuff there in the last few years of his life. What was, what was that like? Rich had moved to Wichita to be around a, uh, a, um, a mentor of his uh, named Morris Howard. And, and then uh, soon after he moved to Wichita, Morris passed. And, but he was in Wichita and he decided that he wanted to go to school and get an education degree so that he could teach at the, at the missions, uh, at the mission school out, out on the reservation. And so, and lo and behold, I, I, I didn't know what I was going to do. So I, I, I was there playing basketball. Um, I decided, well, I'll just study uh, religion and philosophy. And so I had a, a class with Jim Smith, um, James Bryan Smith, and and Rich was uh, living in, in Jim's attic at the time, and they were real good friends. And so Rich, though he was a music education major, decided that he he would he just wanted to take Jim's class, and I was you know that was my line of study. So we met in in the class and and became friends. And in '95, we both graduated from Friends University at the same on the same day, and then the next day we moved out to the Navajo Reservation out in Window Rock, Arizona. And we we lived out there in a dumpy house trailer and, and, and then uh, probably two or three weekends a month, we would go out and do Rich Mullins concerts. That was kind of my my relationship with Rich for, for up, until his, up until his death. So about three years. Um, and we were just getting acclimated to the, to the Navajo uh, culture. Rich wanted to teach music at the at the um, mission school uh, across from the dumpy trailer that we were living in, and and we decided that we would build traditional Navajo houses, hogans. So we spent a lot of time doing that. That he, you know, because they were just one, one room kind of eight sided log cabins, pretty much, and we were building one that would be his kind of bedroom, and building one that would be my my kind of bedroom and then and um and then we would keep the trailer for plumbing and and water and stuff kitchen and um that's kind of what we did and 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 we would go across across the wash and 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 lead retreats at the at the mission church slash school um three or four times a year i found it interesting that his pendulum he seemed really open to this idea of exploring and then at the same time not jettisoning what it was from one from his upbringing or this tradition and he didn't have to throw it away in order to recognize the beauty or value in something else yeah well it's very much just living in in the and you know we are a dualistic thinking um culture uh and 
um, e you know, either you are whatever, up or down, in or out, um, black or white, gay or straight, center or saint, all that stuff. You know, I find that I am both up and down. I'm center and saint. I'm lost and found. And Rich lived in the and very much. Um, he, he was an all-embracing person. And I think that's what made Rich attractive to people. Rich was hard to hard to um, hone in on, on where, where you could peg him. How have you carried this forward in your work? Like you kind of got sent off on a trajectory and you're still doing it. Do you feel like Rich is kind of the, the ghost of Rich is kind of always hovering <laughs> with you as an artist in, in a lot of ways? Um, in a lot of ways, uh, I mean, Rich is the reason I got into doing this and he's who I was around when I, um, when I was coming up le learning, he's who I learned from. And um, so I will always be associated with Rich and that's not such a bad thing to be mentioned in the same uh, whatever sentence or breath as, as Rich is, is wonderful. Um, uh, I, I try and go about things in the same essence, but I'm not, I'm not trying to be a, a rich mini me. He believed in me probably, uh, uh, he, he knew who I was more than, more than I did. I think. What would you say, um, would be sort of the hallmarks or identifying characteristics of an artist that would be working in that tradition openness um and awareness are, are two big ones uh paying attention to life um not being um afraid of what is there uh, but embracing what is there i think we get afraid that truth isn't what we think it is sometimes and i go truth truth is truth you know you know a lot of times we fall into the trap of thinking that we need to we need to stand for the truth as if as if as if the truth needs our help and standing and uh so i think just being open to 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 life um paying attention to life and 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 not being uh, afraid to uh, um, communicate that. Uh, and that's really ethereal stuff. <laughs> it's, it's, not, it's, not very, it's not very tangible. <laughs> Faith is not surety, you know, like, yeah. You know, when we talk about faith, that implies some level of mystery. If someone says those bumper stickers that say God said it, I believe it, that settles it. It's like, that doesn't sound like faith to me. That doesn't sound, that sounds like um, a simple answer to a complicated question, you know? And yeah, um, well, we talk the talk of the mystery of Christ, um, but we are uncomfortable with, with mystery for the most part, um, because we would rather cling to our um certainties in our com compilations of uh, assumed knowledge rather than going out and staring into the uh, nighttime sky and getting lost in the in the mystery that is surrounding us and, and is in us yeah. 
what are some of the rewards that you've experienced having been on this road less traveled as it were gosh so many um i've gotten to go places that i I never would have before i've gotten to interact with countless people i never would have before um and it's it's uh there's so much good uh the uh the uh quote-unquote rewards are you know like like you said they're they're benefits um but you're still active and you're still making new music and you're still pushing the boundaries and you still like your job you still like doing this stuff you still enjoying it i love doing this i don't know what else i would or could do um so uh yeah i'm still making music as as soon as this uh situation that we're in ends i will get back to doing about 100 concerts a year and and every every couple years i document the songs i've I've been doing make recordings and so yeah i I love getting to do this and um and like i said before i i love having um learned learned uh and some things and have and gotten started through rich and 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 been influenced by by him and 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 the ragamuffins everyone is fragile all of us have brittle souls my overcast brings on more damage and clear skies go unknown Everyone is fragile The shadows pull me deeper down And questions lead to no answers Yeah, my voice is crying out This wonderful world's crammed full of heaven That bush I sees in flames Let's sound the alarm On the hills we're living through And feel love's place And take off our shoes When I was talking with Phil Madeira for the podcast recently, I brought up Rich as a side conversation. Here's a bit from Phil on how he remembers those days. Eleanor and I had a little cabin on Nebraska Avenue, and Rich always had a sidekick. And so in this case, it was a guy named Steve Cudworth. That was the first time I met Rich. Didn't really know anything about him. Then I wound up playing on The World's I Best Remember It Part Two. I remember going over to the Goldmine Studio down in Brentwood, putting some B3 on something. I was invited to tour with Rich in 94, so it was Rich and Jimmy A, one of my dearest friends, and Aaron Smith and Rick Elias and Mark Robertson and then Beaker and whoever. But I didn't like that music. But I liked Rich. There was something really compelling about Rich because he was such an iconoclast. So the tour that we did, music aside, was fun. 
there was a lot of fun making the record. Well, I, I, I'll just, let me just say this because I don't know that I knew Rich all that well. I remember Eleanor and I having him over when we were making Brothers Keeper. We had him over for a meal, and that really m- meant the world to him, you know. And I had two little daughters at the time, and um, I still have two daughters. They're just not little anymore. But he really seemed to just kind of melt into the atmosphere of a family. Yeah. And then um, I'll jump back to the tour. The last night of the tour, I went to him and I said to him, hey, I got to ask you something. First of all, thanks for hiring me. Thanks for having me out here. I said, you know, I really really enjoyed this, Rich. I said, "Um, you said something every night that really meant something to me. And John, little did I know how much meaning this really would have a year later when I when I thought my marriage was gonna die it lasted another nine years but a year later these words really meant something to me you know every night you have said there's nothing you can do to make God love you more than he loves you and there's nothing you can do to make him love you less than he loves you I said man that that has really struck me and that's been a gift to hear that and again little did I know how much of a gift I said, I'm just curious, man. Do you believe that for yourself? And he looked at me with the emptiest look you can imagine and said, it's hard, man. Mm -hmm. It's really hard. And I think what I liked about Rich was, I don't know how knowable Rich actually was. Mm. And I felt like the only real interaction I ever had with him of substance was when I went to him that last night of the tour and said, hey, man, you kept saying this thing. I'm just wondering if it rings true for you. And his answer of, it's hard. That is the realest in terms of heart to heart. And it was that brief. It was literally that brief. That that is the realest I ever felt like it got in terms of let's share life. Um, I can remember many meals. I can remember, you know, some studio stuff. So I think I think anyone who talks about intimacy with Rich, um, well, I feel like first of all, I think John, you probably had much more. You seem to have had an experience with him in that little brother way versus peer way it, although at some point that would have morphed into pure purehood but if people talk about being close to rich i think that that being true is probably rare like i think there are very few people that really truly were close to him
Now we come to Rich himself. And again, to put some context to what you are about to hear, this is a very casual and completely unprepared interview I recorded with Rich back in 1995 or maybe late 94, after he was done recording Brothers Keeper but before it was released. He had played me a couple of songs and then suggested that we record a conversation. I had planned to use this for a feature in our print magazine, but it just never happened. From what I recall, On the night this was recorded, we had already been hanging out for a while at the True Tune storefront. I do remember we had been talking for a long time before this, but at this point we settled in on the ideas contained on his Brother's Keeper album, both specifically and generally, but quickly zoomed out to some bigger thoughts about the challenges, limitations, and potentially beautiful aspects of evangelicalism in the 90s. So. Forgive the abrupt intro and the grinding sound of the tape recorder motor and the frivolity in the background and join me as we step into the Wayback Machine and head back to 1995 for this late night conversation with a long lost friend. During the show, he said really cool things about, uh, I guess, more first of all from a a content perspective on the record that it... um, the idea of my brother's keeper, but extending throughout just a lot of different family mm-hmm. angles, but it having more of a a lot of impact from the players, not just from your life, but from the the rest of the ragamuffins. You want to elaborate a little bit on that? Part of the reason why I wanted to do this project is because I've always wanted to be part of a band, and it's always been hard because there's always a lot of machinery behind me and then even if we tried to approach things as a band it was always set up in such a way that you know i was still highlighted probably more than necessary and so this time it was um you know we really wanted to have more band which is why we didn't have a producer um because we were we wanted to just to have the freedom to try everybody's ideas out you know so people would throw out ideas and you know it, it turns into a zoo because you know all the guys who are playing are, are artists in their own right and they all have projects of their own and, and they all have I mean pretty diverse tastes so there were times when everything kind of um, it was like gridlock mm-hmm. and then what you had to do is is you know finally someone just had to to say okay let's drop my idea and let's let's go wholeheartedly with someone else's idea, which is a hard thing to do, especially when you're, you know, everyone's pretty strong-willed. And But to drop your ideas and say, let's really make someone else's idea work great. Conceptually or, or lyrically, was, uh, was it a group effort lyrically or were the songs pretty much written by you? Pretty much me and Beaker wrote everything. Um, Lee and Nikki and I wrote um, Eli's song. Lee being Lee Lundgren and his wife Nikki. I mean, the cool thing about Lee is he's like the original invisible guy. You know, while we're working out who's going to play what and, and everything, he just kind of listens and, and 
wherever there was a gap, Lee would figure out a way to fill in that gap. The magic of his playing is he doesn't overplay anything. I mean, he knows, he just seems to know how how to fill that cup to the rim and never spill over. But the thing that it, that's great about all the guys in the Ragamuffin Band is they're all very, very versatile. So on this album, like he played kalimba, he played lenophone, he played uh, harmonica, um, squeeze box, whatever you, what, accordion, um, guitar, did I say guitar? <laughs> Organ. I mean, he's just kind of, you know, and, and Phil Madeira, you know, also plays, you know, he, he does some drumming, he does some tambourine playing, he plays some guitar, you know, along with the, his regular organ and keyboard things. So it's, you know, it, it was a blast in terms of people getting to do stuff that they wouldn't ordinarily get to do. And you said this was actually, although the same basic people recorded the last record, this is the first time, you mentioned that this felt like the first time that it had actually been more of a band effort. Was that because last time it was the first time, or what What was the difference if you're using the same people? Well, I think the difference was um, that this time we all produced it together. As opposed to Yeah. Yeah. And... Um, it was it was hard for me because I'm so used to Reed, and Reed and I fuss and argue at each other and stuff. But the bottom line is, man, I I love what he does. I love who he is, and um, so it was kind of scary to do it without him. I mean, it was a whole it was a kind of a scary thing for me. But um, we felt like in order to get in order for the guys to be able to do their best thing, they needed to be able to do that without having someone else's approval or disapproval hang over their performance. And I think it worked because I think when people went, we can experiment, we can, you know, um, okay, here's a part that I'm hearing that it might take me a while to get, um, but tell me if you think it's worth pursuing this. And then they play something that, you know, and you go, oh man, that's great, that's great. And then they can work on that part. Whereas when you, when you have a, you know, the way we set it up was we, we just set up so that we had enough time to do those experiments. Strong man's single universe, he drowned the stars, blinded by the mission of a thousand wars. He picked indominus, not wonder why, he heed the battle cry. I think on some of those themes or just some of the, the lacking in evangelical church on the last record even in the title of the liturgy and yeah. I see kind of looking for a little bit more character and depth than the American evangelical church has managed to muster 
you know, one of the things that has concerned me a lot as a evangelical is the lack of spiritual direction among evangelicals. Like a good example is, is I, you know, we went to the elders of our church and said we need some direction, and they were like, "Oh, that's cool," and then didn't know how to give it. And I know a lot of people in that position. And then what happens is, you know, someone comes in and says, "Okay, we're gonna, we're gonna." They don't even call it direction; they call it discipling. We're gonna come in here with this discipling program and straighten all your problems out for you. And then it turns into this really wacko discipline thing. What I'm learning is, man, my job is to love people, and sometimes that means I have to confront them, and sometimes that means, you know, the whole tough love thing. But the deal is, I have to love you whether or not that changes you. And I cannot destroy your free will by making you utterly dependent on me. And I think real authority that is good and healthy and biblical authority is not that kind of authority that makes someone more and more dependent on the authority figure. But it's the kind of authority that nurtures a person's person so that they become who God intended for them to be and they become less and less. They need less and less to have someone stand over them and say, okay, you have to be a bed at 10 and you have to wear a certain kind of clothes. And it's a, you know what I mean? Yeah. So I think, you know, it, it's hard in, in the evangelical thing because we've never understood authority and we've never understood uh, direction. So we're kind of a little bit lost there, I think. And I think we need to be saved. I think if Jesus saves, maybe he can save us from evangelicalism. <laughs> what do you hold up or what do you compare it to? What moments have you found uh, glimpses of hope coming through in that thing that keeps you even bothering with the evangelical church? That the evangelical church hasn't given up on me. is <laughs> okay. very meaningful to me. See, I don't think I grew up evangelical. I don't think that that our family would would consider itself evangelical. You know, I certainly grew up with a reverence for the scriptures. I don't think that we held the view the evangelicals hold of it, but certainly had a reverence for it, believed it was of divine origin, believed that it was the rule of faith. But we never thought of it, we never thought about this thing of, of um, inerrancy and all that. I mean, it wasn't, it was never an issue in our in our church. It was always like, it was always kind of, this is what it means to be a Christian. If, if you know something better, then go for it. But for us, this is what we've chosen. You know, having traveled as much as we've traveled and having been gnawed on at so many different angles by so many people who want you to um, swear allegiance to this particular brand of Christianity or that particular brand, made me a little bit want to go, just go away from me, everybody leave me alone. I, everyone's very convincing, and everyone's very out of their tree, <laughs> you know, so I don't know what to do with it. In my readings, I, I found myself, actually from the time that I was in... Live on tape, see you, Rich. Yeah, so probably from the time that I was, you know, maybe a, a sophomore, junior in high school, I started reading Henry Nowen and really loved his stuff. You know, Chris and I got into C.S. Lewis and all that. Actually, there was a book called um, With Open Hands. It's just a book on contemplative prayer that really kind of spoke to me, having started out Quaker and my mom's family are Quaker and so we've got this nice thing going there. I didn't know at the time that he was um, a Catholic. 
that was one of those books that really stuck with me. And then, you know, after college, you know, I, I went to a Church of Christ Bible college that was somewhat anti-Catholic, I think. And I think that made me more curious about Catholicism than anything. And then I read um, Orthodoxy by G.K. Chesterton and Augustine's Confessions. Because after I read Chesterton, I went, man, this guy is so brilliant. I always thought that Catholicism were for people who didn't really think. Obviously, he, he had thought everything out. Then I thought, well, there must be something to it that, that isn't popularly known, so I decided to read Augustine. I found it amazing. I thought, wow, if this is really wonderful stuff. And what I have found is the more that I've read um, authors from Christian traditions other than the evangelical one, the more I'm finding that, that some of our presuppositions as evangelicals are pretty shallow ones. I used to live with Jim Smith, or James Bryan Smith. He does a lot of work with Richard Foster and, and published a book called, um, I can't remember, but it's something like Spiritual Classics, where he just takes like this classic stuff. And One of the evangelical criticisms was that everyone before the 16th century was Catholic. You know, like as if Christianity was invented by Martin Luther. <laughs> the history of the church goes, you know, at least as far back as Abraham. So there's something here bigger than this limited American evangelical perspective. And I think the American evangelical perspective brings its own thing to the table, and it's a worthwhile thing. I don't think you have to, to throw everything out. But I, I just think there's more to be brought to the table than what is brought to it by 20th century American evangelicals. That was something that you first touched on on the last record. Yeah. Now, how does that? Liturgy, legacy, and ragamuffin band. I, even ragamuffin band being an obvious tip of the hat to Brennan. Yeah, my hero. I have so many heroes, man. It's like. Well, you you got me to to read you and and Rick actually. Rick Elias was the one who actually gave the book to me, um, the ragamuffin gospel back before the ragamuffin band and everything. But, and I've just read Abba's Child, and I and I. I can see that, and I, I'm just wondering if the chemistry of having worked with those guys on one record and then doing a tour together and now coming to the table doing another record, if that was where some of the familial themes through your new songs came from, or if it was more drawn from from specifically your life or Beaker's marriage. Or... Well, you know what I think works well with the Ragamuffin Band right at this point is that we don't hang out together. And I'm finding that we're all so happy to see each other when we get together for a project, like for a tour. And in the course of the three months that we'll be touring this fall, I anticipate nothing but great times. I mean, I'm sure there's going to be some headbutting, but overall, the last tour, man, I had a blast. I had a total blast. But I think it's because we stay separate. I think one problem that a lot of bands have is they're too close to each other all the time. So there are things that you need to work out within yourself and that you need to, you know, like if I'm having, if me and one of the other guys in the band have a, we kind of butt heads, I don't need to talk to anybody else in the band about that. I need to go outside the band. You know, because sure, you're going to let off steam. But you need to have a friend who is, who has nothing to do with that, who goes, go ahead and blow off steam. I'm going to pay no attention to what you say because you're mad. <laughs> and so, but I will I will give you this boon. I will let you blow off all you want. And then after you have let off your steam, 
if you want to talk about it beyond that, then maybe we can we can talk about it. But so you go ahead and you spew all of that evil out, you know, all <laughs> that poison, and then you go, gosh, that's ridiculous. I am really so stupid to have been this upset over this little tiny thing. So then you go back to the man and you haven't prejudiced everybody else against this one poor victim who just happened to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. And so I think one of the things that, that makes the ragamuffins cohesive as a group, there's several things. One is none of us have ever been really accepted by the mainstream. I've been more accepted than the other guys. But the cool thing by, is by quite a long margin. Yeah, but I haven't been accepted by the by the fringe groups. That's true. As accepted as, as these That's other guys. It's probably harder to, <laughs> yeah, to because, appeal to those people. Yeah, because they they see me as being this real kind of mamsy pamsy pussy kind of guy, you know, and I'm kinda of going maybe I am. But you know, maybe there's something to that as well as, you know, maybe just because I don't you know, I don't know. I don't have any tattoos. I, I think that's a problem for people. I don't have an, any pierced body parts. You know, because I, I kind of like the number of holes that I have, and I, I want to keep that the same all my life. It's a constant. Are you still a motorcycle enthusiast? Yeah, I still. See, I remember when I first met uh-huh. you, how you blew my preconceptions, you know, in a number of different ways, and it was very cool because I... I think that on the other extreme, those people are just as shallow or more so than any churchgoer who would be offended by uh, a Christian singer smoking a cigarette. But right. it's just as shallow for them to to not accept somebody unless they do <laughs> type of a thing. Well, and this is the whole thing about that whole thing. And I, you know, we were we were making a joke yesterday with someone. Someone said, "Can I be a ragamuffin?" And this other guy said, "Yeah, Rich, Rich, you're the you're the real." guy who decides who can be the ragamuffin and who can't be. And there's a line in the Peter Gabriel thing that I love. He says, how can we be in if there is no out? (laughs) And so that whole thing of not accepting each other, whether it's my not accepting, you know, your your regular TV evangelist, because really, I have to be honest, I don't, I I have a problem with that. And, but it's my hang up. Uh I don't know, except he's being exactly what God called him to be. It's none of my business to judge that. My business is love and light when that's possible. I stay out of reach of them so I don't have to put that to the test. But any time that we set up this little criteria and say, here's who's in and here's who's out, what that means necessarily is we are shallow, trite, mm-hmm. we're everything we hate in every other group. Mm-hmm. So the ragamuffin band, I think that's one of the cohesive things about it is we all, you know, Jimmy's pretty artsy. Rick's kind of the rock and roll guy. You know, at least that's where his, his his thing has been. And we're all kind of tired of those labels. We're all kind of tired of, of people saying, you know, I think Aaron, who used to play with 77s, is tired of people going, I can't believe you're playing with Rich Mullins now. Because he's like, why is that such an atrocity? <laughs> we, we've all been accepted with one group or another, and we've, we've all been not accepted by everybody else's little group. <laughs> and so part of the reason why we're together is that we have all been accepting and we've all been rejecting of other people and we're kind of all at a place in life where we're going we all need to be more open we all need to set our agendas and our criteria aside I no longer need to decide if you're cool enough to be in my band here's the thing we're all playing together so let's just be a band
We're going to give our ears just a little break from all that tape noise for just a few minutes and crank up the True Tunes jukebox for a bit. Which, if Rich had had anything to say about it, would likely have been a one-speaker battery-operated boombox held together by duct tape and bungee cords. One of the questions I have been asking myself, and as you have heard several of our guests, is what the legacy of Rich Mullins actually is. Also, are there any artists working today who seem to embody elements of that legacy? One artist, to my ears and heart, seems to channel the sound and ethic of Rich more than just about anyone else I can think of. So I'm going to shove this square peg here into the coin slot and say a little prayer as I push the button marked Andrew Peterson down with all my might. Let's see what happens. He said, I have wandered far to yonder ocean I have drunk from every fountain in this world I have turned each mossy stone and have found myself alone But I believe there is love enough for the taking Andrew Peterson crept onto the fringes of the Christian music scene in the late 90s from the fringes of the indie Christian folk scene after having been noticed by the members of Cademan's Call on the road. Peterson's folk-based sound was completely out of step with Nashville's hitmakers and with the exploding rock and alternative crossover scene. An obvious devotee of Mullins, Peterson basically found his own niche among college students and young adults by carefully crafting articulate, theologically rich, three-dimensional songs that seemed to exist outside of time. And like his hero, Peterson's voice was nothing spectacular. Although more consistent than Mullins in terms of control, there was a sweetness to it that was completely devoid of the angst and darkness that was almost a prerequisite of millennial neo-folk. It was clear from his imagery that he was a reader and a deep thinker. He thought enough of his audience to craft songs that invited contemplation and reflection. And while he never had a big Christian radio hit, over time he built a devoted audience. With love he means to save us all And love has chosen you and me Long after we are dead and gone For a thousand years our tale be sung How faith compelled and bore us all His follow-up album, A Christmas Project called Behold the Lamb, was put together as a sort of farewell to his label. Little did he know that it would become a career-defining classic. He still sells out the Ryman Auditorium every Christmas to perform that album with friends. By charting his own course and focusing on his own creative instincts, Andrew Peterson and his friend and producer Ben Shive created a masterpiece. Gather round, ye children, come. Listen to the old, old story of the power of death undone by an infant born of glory, son of God. Son of man, gather round, remember now how creation held its breath, how it let out a sigh. 
himself nothing Well he gave up his pride and he came here to die like a man Peterson migrated to centricity music where he could realize full creative control and form more of a partnership than a conventional label usually offered. That partnership continues to this day and has produced some breathtaking music. Of particular note is Peterson's 2012 album, Light for the Lost Boy. Without losing any of his basic style, Peterson added more of a band sound and more ambient production elements. On a song or two, he actually almost rocked. With tracks like The Cornerstone, Peterson took his already impressive songwriting to a more Peter Gabriel-oriented place, with progressive rock elements adding dimension to the challenging lyrics. I read about the God of Moses roaring in the holy cloud It shook my bedroom window Shine Your Light On Me had all of the angular beauty Peterson was known for, but with more space, more room for the brutally honest and frail lyric of weakness and sickness to bounce around. But when I stepped up to the microphone, I heard it. It was the voices of the brothers at my side. They were singing out my songs when the song in me had died. The album closes with a 10-minute long meditation called Don't You Want to Thank Someone that instead of trying to make an apologetic for the gospel, simply confesses wonder and need and offers invitation. Again, Peterson respects his audience enough to trust them with their own answers to his long, probing question. In listening to this song, I can almost hear Mullins kick in with his hammer dulcimer. The first time I heard it, the song laid me out.
Peterson returned in 2015 with another classic, proving that he had figured this thing out. The Burning Edge of Dawn keeps the full desk production technique going, and again, Peterson offers up song after masterful song, each riding the line between obliquely dense poetry and super accessible hooks. Well, yesterday I trimmed the vines and spread the leaves along the ground in Tennessee. And I tried to hold it in my mind that all the light that's coming down takes ages to get to me. And I was on the inside looking out. I was lifted by a solar wind up over the clouds. And I could hear the hosts of heaven singing out loud. Every star is a burning flame. Every star is a burning flame. One song here, though, stands out not only among Peterson's catalog, but truly as one of the most important and disarming pop songs in the annals of Christian music. Be Kind to Yourself left me in an absolute puddle the first, oh, 20 times I heard it. And then when I had Andrew come share the song at Treveca a couple years ago, I lost it all over again. There is so much truth packed into this song about forgiveness that I think we should all memorize every word of it. Be kind to yourself. Be kind to yourself I know it's hard to hear it when that anger in your spirit Is pointed like an arrow at your chest When the voices in your mind are anything but kind And you can't believe your father knows best I love you just the way that you are I love the way he's shaping your heart be kind to yourself. And no one can tell me that somehow Rich isn't in the room on We Will Survive. Do you remember how we used to drive over the mountain and down to the river bend? Where the ghosts of the valley all haunt the tracks The highway calls your stories back again Oh, Jamie, I'm all alone out here And all I used to know is in the wind And now I don't recognize a thing Need a brand new song to sing So tell me the story I still need to hear Tell me we're gonna make it out alive again I need to know there's nothing left to fear There's nothing left to hide So will you look me in the eye And say we will survive 2018, Peterson released Resurrection Letters Volume 1, an only slightly cheeky prequel to his 2008 album Resurrection Letters Volume 2. That record had been focused on the theme of the repercussions of the resurrection, whereas Volume 1 was a collection of songs about the resurrection of Christ directly. It's a fantastic conceptual work, almost like the second act of a three-act play that starts with Behold the Lamb and ends with Resurrection Letters 2. And as with Mullen's Jesus record, it indicates the full potential of what CCM can be at its creative, theological, and communal best. 
And yes, if you aren't familiar with it, you simply must hear his transcendent hymn, Is He Worthy? Is anyone worthy? Is anyone whole? Is anyone able to break the seal and open the scroll? The Lion of Judah, who conquered the grave, he is David's root and the Lamb who died to ransom the slave. Is he worthy? Is he worthy of all blessing and honor and glory? Is he worthy of this? He is. And as if all that music wasn't enough, folks, Peterson has also released several award-winning books, including young adult fantasy series The Wing Feather Saga, and an excellent book on the mystery and practice of creativity called Adorning the Dark. Oh, and along with his brother Pete Peterson, he has created The Rabbit Room, an online gathering place designed to foster Christ-centered community and spiritual formation through music, story, and art. The Rabbit Room hosts an annual conference called Hutchmoot that is, well, sublime. If you're already a fan of Andrew Peterson, I hope you have enjoyed this detour. If not, though, and you, like me, sometimes wonder what the point of Christian music even is, let me suggest that Andrew Peterson makes the kind of Christian art that I think I would enjoy regardless of the attendant dogma. He is creating sacred art in the form of music in much the same way that great artists of the faith did in the past. In this way, he sets an excellent example of the potential for Christians in the arts today, especially because his work is compelling whether you agree with the theology behind it or not. That's how art should work. Okay, now back to the tape with Rich. Now this roof has got a few missing shingles But at least we got ourselves a roof And they say that she's a fallen she recalls when she last knew There's no point in pointing fingers Unless you're pointing to the truth And I will be my brother's keeper Not the one who judges him I won't despise him Is there any other uh, general uh, common thread throughout the songs as far as the lyrics go on this record? This is less conceptual than anything else I've ever done, I think. 
Not that I ever really tried to write a concept album. It just always seems like in the past, I was kind of stuck in one groove on each different, you know. This one, to me, though, when I listen to it, it sounds much more joyous than what I would have expected of myself. And I, I think it's because joy is becoming more and more an issue in my life. I think it hit me one time when I was talking to someone who was talking about suffering for their art and I went, all of a sudden I heard myself saying the same kind of stuff and I went, suffering for art, what a stupid thing to suffer for. You deserve your suffering. You know, <laughs> there's enough in life that's hard. Art is not one of those things that we ought to be tormented over. Um, and then I started thinking about, you know, and C.S. Lewis really hit me hard here, as did G.K. Chesterton. And, you know, I'm finding more and more when you read these guys, you're finding out, I'm finding out this whole thing of the tortured artist is really kind of a crock. And their thing, as, as, as I understand it, is that you write because of a surplus of stuff in your life. That writing, the creativity, that kind of thing is an overflow of joy. And any good artist is going to have something that is really human in their work. And it's I'm not all hung up about being an artist because I'm kind of going, gee, it's hard to think of yourself an artist when your stuff is being sold in Christian bookstores. But I, I kind of go, there was a time when I was pretentious enough to go, well, my art is blah, 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 or, you know, I'm trying to do this or I'm trying to do that, and hung out with people who were into all that. And, you know, now I look back on it and I think, wow, what a bunch of pretentious little snobs we all were. <laughs> you know, and so... It's almost like an album of little snapshots. The songs are all pretty short, and uh, the first song is Brothers Keeper, which is kind of a kind of the theme for me in in the last couple of years. And I think a theme ragamuffin band wise because we all know that my friends ain't the way I wish they were. They're just the way they are. This is the thing that we're really grappling with. How do I embrace what you are, and how do I how do I, without squelching you, without forcing you into my mold, how do I um, enhance your individuality? How do I contribute to something that is completely independent of me and not try to get my hands on it and try to manipulate it? The second song is a song about fatherhood, <laughs> which is, you know, kind of, I guess, brother brother thing. Because one of the lines I love in it, and it's a line that Bigger came up with and I resent it, is, um, <laughs> I'll meet you in that place where mercy leads. Because I think, you know, it would be hard for me, if I had a son, it would be hard for me to imagine that I didn't know him already intimately, that I would need to meet him anywhere. But I think it was a cool insight that that Beaker had that that even in the in the most intimate relationships, which we talked about in, in the song Peace, even in these most intimate relationships, there is still a personality or a there is a an essence beyond personality. There's something there beyond how cute a little kid is or how athletic somebody is or how articulate blah 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 blah. blah. So that's kind of a fatherhood song. 
And then the next song is a Hatching of a Heart, which is a steal from Thomas Merton. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's kind of about the rebirth experience. So um, that's pretty different. And then Promenade, which is a parable. And it's mostly just a song kind of saying the most appealing thing about Christianity is Christianity. And so if we would all stop trying to figure out how to how to flatten Christ onto a billboard, if we would let Christ be Christ, and if I would let you be you, and I would be me, and we would become the body of Christ that we were intended to be, what would be more compelling than that? And then there's a song about separation. And the whole deal behind Wounds of Love is everyone is going to be wounded. Everyone is going to be hurt. And so I hope the thing that you get hurt by is love, as opposed to being hurt by someone being sadistic or someone being jealous because we're all going to get it so I hope you get it from your friends then a song that I wrote when my ex-fiance and I broke up called Damascus Road this was my attempt at it saying the Lord give it the Lord take it away blessed be the name of the Lord so I, I sat down in it in fact I drove away from her apartment and stopped in a rest area and said you know what now I know why we're commanded to praise you because I need to because right now, I feel like someone just, just jerked all of my insides out and threw them on the ground. And I need to praise you, so help me to do that. And I wrote most of the song, but I was, I was a good bit younger then, and it wasn't particularly good. So Beaker helped me to kind of tidy up some lines, and we, we uh, wrote a new bridge for it. And then the next song is Eli's song, which is a song about a little girl. And it's, I love this song because I wrote it. The music is based on a little Hammered Smith thing that I wrote, that I loved this little melody that I had on Hammered Smith. and it sounded, you know, I was talking to, to Lee and Nikki Lundgren, you know, okay, listen to this, and doesn't this sound like a little lullaby? And, and so we kept talking about it and wanted to write a song around, around this little melody. And by the time we, we couldn't finish it until like the day before we recorded it. But Nikki just said, it's kind of like a cowgirl and a, kind of like a ballerina. And so we took those two images and juxtaposed them and that became a basis for the song as well as a couple, there are a couple of Paul's prayers that Nikki especially wanted to pray for Eli, for e- Eliza, we call her Eli. So that's how that, that's how came their That's their little baby, yeah. Right. She was born about a month after Aiden. Oh, and you know the Eliases had just had a baby too. Right. So we had three nursing three mothers at the same time. In the man, there must have been <laughs> something in the water. Let's see. So then after that song about the little girl, then there's "Cry the Name of the One," which is about being out west, um, and just that whole how easy it is to worship when you're out in the desert. I mean, it's just it just kind of it just bursts out, and there's nothing to restrain it because there's nothing there. Which is the wonderful thing about the desert. And then um, the next song is another breakup song. But it's not really a song about a breakup, but I was dating this girl and we were we were in Ireland and, and I, I knew I went, this is not meant to be. I cannot, I don't know if it's because I'm sick or if it's just not in the cards or if it's not in the plan. But as much as I would like to be able to say right now today, will you marry me? I can't because we can't get married. And I, I'm not sure why, I just know we can't. I know, I went through the exact same thing. So, that's, that, that song was written in Ireland. It's, it's maybe my personal favorite on the album. It is 
the sea that makes a sailor And the land that shapes the sea And I do not know yet what I'm made of Or all I may someday be And it is the wood that makes a carpenter It's the very tools of his trade And it is love that makes a lover And a cross that makes a saying And the last song, quoting Deuteronomy to the Devil, is um, just another one of those songs where, you know, I think sometimes people don't get it when I'm making fun of something, but uh, like Awesome God, mm-hmm. um, and I'm not making fun of God in that at all, but the the verses, the way that I sing them, I'm kind of making fun of those preachers that yell all mm-hmm. the time, because there's no melody, it's just da 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 and then the congregation responds, Oh God is an awesome <laughs> so it's kind of that call and response thing which I mean I say I'm making fun of it I'm not really because I think it's a cool thing so quoting Deuteronomy to the devil is a little bit the same way it's kind of kind of provoked by that same radio evangelist kind of thing where, where the guy is yelling but I was stricken with the line that there's a coming of glory there's a coming of wrath and I, I wrote it in another song a long time ago and didn't use it but that line persisted, which I find a lot of times I'll write a bad song, but out of that bad song, there will be a line that I'll just remember that just seems to want to be sung. To me, it, it has a wonderful, I mean, of course I think it's good because I wrote it, but I think that's okay because, because you kept it. <laughs> yeah. Um, but to me, it, it, it you know, it, it was Fulton Sheen in his book, The Life of Christ, which is one of my favorite books. It's beautifully, beautifully written book. Um, he talks about how Christ, everything that, that Satan offered Christ was proper for a person to have. He said, Satan did not offer Christ anything that God was not going to give Jesus. But what Satan offered Christ was a shortcut. You can have this glory. You can have this protection. and You can have this, all of this without suffering, so why suffer? And so when Jesus came out of the wilderness, he had already defeated Satan and he had already defeated his, whatever human inclination he would have to protect himself and to keep himself from sorrow. So that three years later when he goes to Calvary, he's already practiced. He already knows suffering must come before glory, at least the glory I'm called to because I'm called to take away the sins of the world. And so, suffering is necessary for me and he accepted that which i think is a wonderful thing so for me quoting deuteronomy to the devil is is this kind of one of those commitment songs it kind of goes um because i can see i i mean i know it's silly but i can kind of see christ just looking at satan like what are you kidding me it says in deuteronomy because all three of his quotes are from Deuteronomy, from the book of Deuteronomy. So I ended up, I mean, that was a blast because it was a blast to do. It was a blast to write. And it also meant something to me. Because I think sometimes it's okay to be a little bit spunky if you have to be. <laughs> I tend to be kind of a mamsy-pamsy kind of guy, yeah. Yeah, you think you tend to be a mamsy-pamsy guy? Yeah. I, Compared to what? You must be comparing yourself to somebody that you see as not being that way because 
like for I example, Rick. Oh, <laughs> Ricky Elias. <laughs> um, okay, okay, let's see who was I in the studio with. Ricky Elias. Phil Madeira. Uh, man, I've been around some All pretty right, strong. Well, I would... And I've worked for years with Reed Arvin. I don't know Reed very really. Oh, man. Yeah, so well, be it's careful no wonder I see myself to <laughs> I think if you compare yourself to the people that John Q. Public would compare you to, which would be anybody from uh, Gary Chapman to whoever's on any cover of CCM at any given point, I think you would come off as being the, for lack of a better term, the more of the badass crowd. <laughs> Maybe you're hanging out yeah. with them. <laughs> yeah, I think it's you're doing working. fine. I think you're doing fine in that way. Peter was a preacher at the Pentecost. Says you must turn around and you must be washed. Cause there's a coming to glory. Hey, hey, hey. There's a coming to rest. Any other books you've mentioned? Fulton Let's Sheen. Let's see. I mentioned Fulton Sheen, uh, D.K. Chesterton, Orthodoxy, okay. Henry Nouwen, especially. I mean, I really like. And also, can you put a little disclaimer in there? I do not like these books because everything they say is true. But there is something in these books that is worth finding. Mm -hmm. And some of the ideas may be really hard for people to take. Allow those things that are, are, are hard for you to take to stretch you. This is the whole trick in the Christian life. When does faithfulness to Christ call us to set aside our theological presuppositions? And when does faithfulness to Christ call us to stand firm on our theology? When does it call us to, to stretch? And when does it call us just to stand firm? Because so often I, I found things that I thought were really important in terms of my relationship with God. As I grew, you know, years later that same discussion would come up and I'd go, man, I can't remember why I used to think that was a big deal. Oh, anyway, G.K. Chesterton, Orthodox, is my favorite book. Um, as far as just religious reading, Henry Nouwen. Two books that, well, boy, he just has a lot of good books. Uh, but with open hands, I think is really exceptional. I also really like The Wounded Healer. And then some of his more recent books, I just finished... I can't remember the... I think it's his most recent book, though. It's it's on the Eucharist. Do you like Buechner? Oh, I love Buechner. I especially like Wishful Thinking. And I also yeah. love... Um, the, oh, what is it called? Telling the... Let's see, the Gospel in Fairy Tale, Tragedy, and Comedy, or something like that. I think it's called Telling, telling the, the Truth. truth right. The Gospel in... Okay. Something, something, something. I love that one. I love Wishful Thinking. Godric? Have you read Godric? No, but you know what? Son of Laughter yeah. is shocking. Yeah. What a great retelling. Yeah. I mean, he did with that book what I wanted to do with Jacob and Two Women. So, I mean, having read that book, it makes me want to take that song and wad it up into a big ball and throw it <laughs> in the dirt. I hate that. Oh. What anyway. Seven Story Mom? You know, I haven't read that. Really? Thomas Martin, Seven yeah. Story Mom? 
You know, my favorite thing of his is uh, Raids on the Unspeakable. It's just a little collection of different little essays. Have you read um, it's Brother Lawrence, um, The Practice of the Presence of God? Christ, yeah, of God, right. I haven't read that. Oh, you gotta read that too. I would probably like it. Right now I'm reading a Thomas, this book by Matthew Fox. Oh, he's out there. Called, uh, the Sheer Christ? Joy. Oh, uh, yeah, he's in The Cosmic Christ. Oh, yeah. Which I'm not sure I get, but I don't know how seriously to take all that. Right. It's kind of, okay. yeah, so. <laughs> right. Cool. Well, that makes for a good reading list. But this is a, a book on Thomas Aquinas. Oh, okay. Where he interviews Thomas Aquinas. It's very cool. Cool. Because, you know, it's amazing to me that the people think, you know, like I got this letter from this woman really angry because I liked, because I recommended uh, Confederacy of Dunces. And she said, how could you recommend a book that has, you know, describes in gross detail a guy masturbating with his dog? And I was like, because it's a hysterically funny book. <laughs> you know, and whether or not you like the idea of of this particular part of it, it was brilliantly written. It's weird to me, that I, and I wonder if this is like a 20th century American phenomenon, that people like or dislike a book, and it all has to do, if they like a book, then they want everything in it to be right. Mm -hmm. And if they dislike a book, no matter what else the guy has said, if he says one wrong thing, then they dismiss the whole book. And kind of going, is this because we live in such a desperate time you know, when people are so desperate for answers that they can't just accept that they're, whatever answers are out there are probably beyond our reach. And so the thing to do is to read for the fun of reading. Mm -hmm. And learn what there is to learn. I mean, there are many things to learn and not everything points you directly to some answer. Too bad. <laughs> cool. Cool. And that's it. That's how the tape ended. Well, truthfully, some White Cross kicked in. And when we were already producing this episode, Derek Webb, the progressive folk singer who has been anything but shy about his journey away from his evangelical faith, happened to drop a new single, a cover of Rich's We Are Not As Strong As We Think We Are, which I came to find out was from an entire EP of Mullins covers Webb has released for his Patreon backers. While on one hand, a Mullins cover from Webb would make perfect sense, Webb and his original band Cademan's Call began their career as unabashed acolytes of Rich's style and ethic. On the other hand, Derek's very public move away from not only Christian music, but faith in general, makes this an interesting choice of material indeed. I reached out just in time to see what Rich meant to Derek and why, after all these years, and his own spiritual path has taken the turns it has, he's returning to these songs. When I first encountered Rich, which was both anecdotally and through stories of guys in the band who had had some interactions with him, like Cliff Young, who, who was in, I was in Cademan's with, and his dad was the pastor of this huge church in Houston where Rich had played many concerts. So Cliff had had a lot of interaction with Rich and had hung out with Rich. So I had some of that going. And then there was the interactions that we were having with him, somewhat brief initially, when we first got together and we were starting to record music and we recorded, you know, his, uh, his, his some of his songs. And then there were these recordings, these video recordings of a bunch of his concerts that he had done there at the church where Cadence was kind of getting started at Second Baptist in Houston. Uh, but like there were recordings, like really amazing archives of all these shows. 
And I would go up to the media department at that church and just sit in there and dig through and find those tapes and just watch them. I remember seeing, as an early 20-something, seeing Rich in these videos, hearing these stories, and just thinking to myself, thinking to myself how remarkably, stunningly out of step he was. He was just so out of step by any metric. He was so incredibly fascinating and not only out of step, but just almost perfect, would almost perfectly pivot around every corner where you would, where, where you would, you'd be tempted to predict him. And he would just swing back and forth and you couldn't catch him. Like you couldn't figure him out. And, um, and so it was everything from, you know, the, um, I remember Cliff telling me this one story and it happened just before we'd all gotten together in the band. It was like months before, but he had been at second to play a show. They'd set it all up. Beaker was with him. It was that era. And he had set up and then he had kind of, like, like an artist tends to do, he had kind of wandered off to go have some time on his own before the show started. The crowd was assembled. The show was about to start. No one could find Rich. Um, he was nowhere to be found. Nobody knew where he was. Cliff said that he just had this weird gut and he was like out looking for him. And their church was huge. And so he noticed that their little security truck that drives around the perimeter, like any good, you know, Texas megachurch, there's a security truck uh, policing the perimeter for any <laughs> vagrant looking uh, folks who look like they might need to enter the church. Uh, of course, trying to got to keep those folks out. But so, it, but he, he saw the, the light in the corner of the parking lot and he just had this, he was like, oh God, he had this feeling. He went out there and, and Rich was there and the security was there hassling him. And apparently Rich had wandered respectfully off of the grounds of the church, just off the grounds, because he wanted to like smoke a cigarette or something. So he wandered just off the grounds and then he was trying to come back. And of course he was wearing like a white t-shirt and cut off jean shorts and was probably hadn't showered in a couple of days. He looked like a homeless dude. You know, that's how he mm -hmm. looked most of his life. Right. And the security guy was not letting him back. And he was like, no, you don't understand. I'm Rich Mullins. Like this is the, all these, the cars in the parking lot, like that, that's my show. I'm trying to get to, I got a concert. He was like, sure, sure, buddy, you know, you know, scram. So Cliff has to come and rescue him and get him in. And they come and he just kind of casually walks from the back of the place, comes in the, the main door, just walks right up the middle aisle and right up to the stage, you know, it's like, and goes up and just kind of puts his guitar on and starts to play the show and everybody oh, freaks he had out. To buy a ticket. <laughs> he just about had to buy a ticket to get into his own show. He barely made it. But there were so many stories like that. And then you hear the stories of like vows of poverty, which was just stunningly upside down from the way anyone was managing anything or thinking about the business at that point. He was fascinating. I mean, you couldn't put your finger on him. Right. And that I remember as a young 20-something thinking I was all out of step and radical and whatever. And then you see Rich Mullins and you're like, oh man, I'm such an amateur. Like this guy is for <laughs> real. This is the real thing. When I think of artists who carried on, lingered in that afterglow of Rich, uh, mm. you come to mind, you know, for sure, you know? Well, I, I mean, I appreciate that. I mean, I think I, I, I certainly don't have his, um, he was so pastoral without so easily effortlessly pastoral like he would not even really mean to and if you watch any of the footage of any of his concerts over the years especially those later ones he would sermonize and it was he really deeply cared like he really cared he was emotionally immediately available to what he was giving you and he was connected to it himself and you could tell that what you were getting out of him was was authentic and you know, at a time when authenticity was becoming 
uh, uh, you know, part of every m- marketing plan, you know, and it was, it was like people were figuring out how to, how to put it together and what the, what the, you know, how to build an authenticity. He was doing it and it was effortless. It's not only that, and it wasn't all, only his radical sermonizing and, it, you know, he would just go totally off the script and, and those were the magic moments when he would just start to kind of levitate a little bit because his songs were what always brought him back. I mean, the, the songs is where he just did such an incredible job of balancing and recentering. And so he would, and that's, that's the role his songs played to his real-time personality when you would see him. And so his real-time personality, he would go, he would take these radical swings and he would say these crazy, amazing things, but then he'd play a song and everybody just recentered, And it brought everything back to this balanced center area. Um, and his songs were amazing. You would hear him on the radio or you would hear out his, his records or his songs. And he was such a great Bible teacher. He was such a great poetic thinker and vulnerable communicator and then you would see him live and that's where you would just you couldn't believe like people would just walk in and half the crowd would be offended at one point and the other half would be laughing and then these people would be offended and these people would be laughing and then everybody would be laughing and then everybody would be a little you know head head turned sideways and that was during all the talking but the songs brought everybody back and so he would pull you in with the songs and then he would take you on like a journey that would challenge you in every way but the songs are what you were left with and that's what made it all work You know, and that's the difference. And that was his genius. To lay down your fears, come and join this feast. He has called us here, you and me. And maybe it's rained down from heaven, like little pieces of the sky. Little keepers of the promise, holding on the souls the drought has dried. of Christ to you. To some extent, I also think that when he was offending and preaching, he was putting himself first in the seat of rebuke. Like he he was constantly disassembling himself. Uh, I think that's true. As opposed to sitting in a seat of judgment and pointing at others. But one of the ways he would do that though, even if he did have some hard words occasionally, he was definitely always in his crosshairs, in his own crosshairs. That's 100% correct. Right. It was this insane juxtaposition in real time because he would make these very strong and, and, and you know, statements about his, what he would see um, happening, like the footage you can see of his later concerts that are, that are available and that are captured, where he would really say some challenging words, some very challenging words to kind of the status quo of the, of the church and church culture. But the reason it didn't come off as judgmental is because he was he was including himself, obviously. The, the thing that balanced it for him is that he was so clearly flawed and demonstrated and offered his flaws always, both in his songs and in what he would say. But because you could so clearly see him as a flawed individual, and then he would make these incredible statements of either Bible kind of truth, clarity, you know, prophetic word about a thing or a direct truth to power prophetic moment, you know, talking about church culture, talking about church behavior. 
and he would say these things, but it was like coming from the least likely source in in a sense and the most in likely sense. in another. And so, and which was <laughs> right. very consistent with Bible tradition. When you listen to some of these songs, is that some of what you're hearing is that you're able to go back into that journey because there's less for you to disagree with and riches and riches art um, because he's yeah. not laying out propositional things as much as he's laying out the markers of a journey. My perspective on him was that he seemed very like he bristled at propositional thinking because what what prop, what propositional thinking does is it draws lines and then people who are within or outside of lines are included or excluded based on where they are relative to the propositional lines. And he didn't like any lines. He liked to be able to freely move, which I heard him say a lot. It felt more honest to him because it felt like just the following of the spirit, let's say. And you don't quite ever know, like the spirit's not going to move within your propositional, denominational, theological lines. It's not going to be contained. It's not going to move predictably. And so he would just kind of follow that around and he would follow it right over a pro propositional line or right over the other one on the other side and then way over to there where there, we can't even see where the line and then he'd come right back through the and he just kind of wandered around kind of following the spirit let's say that feels like another way of saying you know like you either kind of follow the paved road which is the people have come in and said okay we've seen this predictably enough to where we've cleared this off and we've paved it now here's the these are the lanes we're going to stay in and here are the guardrails on each side and here's our propositional ideas he put no faith and had no uh care for the paved roads um he would just he would wander his way onto those occasionally and he would be fascinating to the people who would be rushing one way uh, or the other down those and then he would just kind of venture right off and then he would come back across again and i and so i think for him he was kind of following that spirit around and he was on that invisible discernible path versus that paved you know path that i think is kind of guarded on both sides by propositional truth i mean i think he he wasn't ignorant to it he certainly because he he, he knew it well enough to know exactly where the lines were that he could push against them a little bit and he could challenge people uh on on some of that if he knew that's what they needed and so he would do that Well, I can see Jesus in on a cross. I can see Jesus in on a cross. I see Jesus in on a cross. Came looking for the lost and love has come. Love has come. Love has come. Giving me hope to carry on. I don't think he believed that he had mastered it or that his that he had figured it out and so everybody no. needed to follow him on that path. No. I heard another I uh, read a, uh, an analogy um, to compare Australian uh, ranchers their farms are so big that they could never build fences because by the time they built a fence they by the time they finished it the part they put up first would be falling down. Um, because the, the property is so immense. So wow. instead they focus on digging good wells and their cattle just learn not to travel too far away from the good water. And so they don't <laughs> worry about the boundary lines. They worry about the good water. And um, that's the kind of journey that I, I as a young person felt 
Rich was trying to always find the good water, point to the good water, and and at times say, hey, you know what? Uh, you might actually be a little closer to the good water than I am. What are you reading or what what are you finding mm-hmm. out about this? He was not portraying himself as a guru. Like he, he wasn't saying I've yeah. discovered the, the ultimate well. And he had a, a sense of compassion for, for the people that he found that he could resonate with that were at risk of wandering so far out because they were just so wounded by where the good water should be that they weren't going to go yeah. there. He's a guy who seemed to value the questions so much more than the answers. Like what he what he was interested in and what he cared a lot more about were the questions people were asking than the answers that they were giving to those questions. So asking the right questions consistently seemed a lot more of his general guidance and his general concern than having the right answers to those questions consistently. Yeah, I think he was willing to kind of follow the answers a little bit and kind of follow follow that where it was where it would go as long as, but the, the, the signposts for him were the questions, is asking the right questions. And that seemed to be for him, uh, you know, really important. And, you know, like your, your whole analogy of the water, I mean, he, the thing that's inspiring about a guy like him he seemed to be a guy who had access to if if there is if there's the you know water at all or good water or what, what wherever wherever that analogy breaks down he seemed to have he seemed to be tapped into it he seemed to be you know he, he was drinking it um and, and usually it'd be like i like those questions like those are good questions like you, i think you're into some water too you know and as opposed to but what you wouldn't imagine him saying is oh i like those answers like those are the right answers I'm into those answers versus those answers. It was like, no, no, like those questions versus those questions. I think we're asking the wrong questions. These are the better questions. And so that for me, especially right now, is very inspiring because I wanna be caught up in the right questions. I, I don't wanna be preoccupied with the answers right now. And, and I want to, his songs, the reason I wanna spend time with them is because I want them to continue to wash over me as I'm, landing in new spots or venturing new places. I want that language to be available to me so that I can continue to try it on and see how it feels. Like I'm finding more and more and more interesting things in the way he expressed it even then, which is to say, which is just to show how far out in front of certainly me um, and most people I think he was. You know, he would bristle at, at the term, but I think it just makes him special. I think he was special. We thought we'd give the surviving ragamuffins the last word here. I wanted to know what Jimmy A., Mark Robertson, and Aaron Smith thought about Rich's intentions vis-a-vis his audience, the church, and his art had his journey continued longer. So, back to Blind Jimmy's Lighthouse for a final few words from them. I do think for young artists to to have those people as role models is good. I know socially he he tried to work with the church, but kind of challenge him. I know the, the very last tour, he was really hardcore down on the religious right kind of thinking. I can remember at a gig in Texas, you know, real conservative place going like, he's like, you religious writers, disg- all you people disgust me. <laughs> he's like, because you talk a good game until you drive back to your neighborhood where there's no gays or blacks or poor people. But, and uh, you know, it's like, he was hard on folks. He, he also, he walked the walk 
on the important things so that when he spoke about justice issues, when he spoke about compassion, when he spoke about loving, it resonated as being true. It wasn't preachy because he wasn't coming off like a hypocrite. He wasn't coming off like a Pharisee. He was saying, look, I'm free from the bonds of materialism. And he chose to live a simpler life and to give away most of his stuff. That kind of message was countercultural to me. That, that was appealing to me. And so when he spoke up about the First Nations people that he was called to love, or he spoke up about uh, things, I sat forward and, and he was challenging some of my preconceptions about politics because he was walking that walk in a way that was I couldn't dismiss. Whereas other people were just saying things that they heard and they had a political opinion and everybody has a political opinion. But he was backing that up with his lifestyle. And that goes back to that question of why isn't there anyone kind of more like him? You know, I, I, I think I think if Rich had been born like in the 1800s, let's, let's say he was an adult in the 1800s, he would have been on horseback with a guitar riding from town to town doing exactly what he did, you know? He was sincere, he was the real deal, you know? And as much as Rich seemed to be rebelling against certain aspects of what Christian music was at that time, it seemed to me that he knew what his audience wanted, but he also seemed to know or have some kind of instinct as to what his audience needed. He chose to stay where his audience was, but he was still trying to push his audience a little bit, like every time. Do you think Rich had that kind of agenda to push his audience to grow a little bit? And I think he, he, he particularly wanted to push Christians into thinking, you know, thinking about the church, thinking about their faith, thinking about other people. You know, so I think that was his his thing. He was trying to teach people how to think and how to see the world and, and ask questions of their faith and, and to see Jesus in that and compare it to where they are, you know. I think in addition, though, Aaron, uh, I think he was really trying to expand his horizons musically. There is this power in the very construction of songs that I totally admire. I mean, I've learned so much to this day. I've learned so much about the way Rich approached the construction of a song, even, you know, even back in the day before we got to do the, the Jesus record, which we didn't think we were going to get to do because he had passed. You guys would probably all remember, at least I do, him playing certain songs and asking what could I do to improve this? What could what would you do to, you know, fix whatever's wrong? And obviously, in all humility, I, I couldn't find anything wrong <laughs> with anything that he sat down and played me on the acoustic guitar or piano. I mean, in other words, he's he's looking for growth in his own musical expression and his ability to speak and cut words up and put them together in ways that nobody has done since in a way 
was an intuitive aspect and his wanting to become more sophisticated in his writing and in his thinking, he had a pretty massive ego, and yet it was coupled with a definable insecurity and humility <laughs> coupled with what was a God-given talent to slay the masses. His ability to speak to a public, I don't know another artist with that kind of charisma and, you know, he, he was a born songwriter. In the rearview mirror now, I've got the advantage of having listened to probably 130 songs that weren't recorded, that I had no idea were out there. And I'm telling you, man, categorically, he could get as crazy as Broadway show tunes and then as simplistic and pure as Hold Me Jesus. He, he was really, really something special. I think it, the encouragement comes in the same form, that you do what God has called you to do, and you are gonna be surprised if you really own up to it. And I think that's how to define uh, an up and coming. I mean, the new generation where we're looking in expectation for, you know, not a replacement, there isn't a replacement, but I mean, there are a handful of artists who are good in their own right and have their own following and command a crowd and they're gifted, uh, I think, uh, in magnificent ways. But man, he was one in a million. And I just don't think we're gonna see that. Uh, you know, every generation may have them, but I think, uh, I think it would be a mistake to be constantly on the lookout for that. I hope you've enjoyed this time with Rich. I know I have. I miss my older brother. I remember once giving him a hard time about his camel cigarettes. I told him I had this picture of us in my mind as old men hanging out on a porch somewhere telling stories and talking about books to young people. He laughed and said that sounded nice. He told me that smoking was a childish thing and that just like Paul said, at some point we must put away childish things. When he said that, I immediately felt childish again. I talked to Rich on the day that he died. Michelle and I had a show that night pretty close to where he was staying in the northwest suburbs of Chicago. He was going to come and sit in on a song with us. He was also encouraging me on my songwriting, even talking with me about getting a publishing deal to write songs for people in Nashville. He was one of the first people to walk me through how publishing worked and to really encourage me in that area. We were going to listen through some of my songs and he was taking some to his people in Nashville, but he called me just before the sound check and told me that their plans had changed and that he and Mitch were heading out of town right away. He had to miss the show, but would be back soon. We were going to get together then. He was gone a few hours later. I couldn't believe it. Rich's music wasn't perfect. Nothing about Rich was perfect, but that made it all that much more beautiful. He was an interesting songwriter to be sure, but the power of his art, I believe, was directly connected to the way he allowed his brokenness to show so that God's grace could shine through. He became less, and thus Jesus became more. And as a result, I felt like there was a place in this family for someone as dented as me. Mm -hmm.
As I climb up on my soapbox here to wrap this up, I'm thinking about what we call Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. After the opening Beatitudes, you know, that amazing and completely subversive list of promises about who will be blessed in Jesus' kingdom, we see in Matthew chapter 6 some incredible and encouraging words from Jesus. When I think about Rich Mullins, in fact, this is one of the first sections of scripture that comes to mind. Jesus starts by saying, be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. This seems to be what Rich had in mind as he quietly gave away money to the needy. He didn't shout it from the rooftops. In fact, his own band members didn't even know for quite a while. I remember when I finally worked up the nerve to ask him about this, and he was very comfortable talking with me about it. He simply said that he had decided to live on whatever the average salary was and to give the rest away. He didn't think that it was really that much of a sacrifice, actually. He did his best to convince me that it didn't make him some kind of saint. His needs were met, and he was having a great time, but he was free from the stress and anxiety of even having to think about money. And beyond the money, a big part of the evangelical industrial complex has always been built upon the public practice of righteousness. It goes to the root of our branding ethic, those commercial instincts that are burned into us so deeply. If the gospel is our product, we had better represent it well and sell it effectively. So many in the Christian culture, including many in the Christian music world, got this very specific advice from Jesus completely backward. Jesus goes on to apply the same basic idea about privacy and humility to how we pray and fast. He then offers that famous model of prayer that we call the Lord's Prayer. It's a simple, direct, honest kind of prayer that is full of submission. Then in verses 19 to 21, we have that classic command, the one that so few of us take seriously at all. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Rich took this one seriously. He had nothing to steal. Stuff had no power over him. He was free, at least in that way. Then in verse 22, Jesus says, The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? This really reminds me of Rich and so many of the problems we see in the church and the culture today. Jesus here gets right to the heart of our problem. We can't see. Our ability to discern the good from the bad, the precious from the trash, the beautiful from the ugly is devastated, destroyed when we try to serve God and money. Our hearts are made to worship and we will worship something, but will it be God or will it be money, the perception of security, power, significance, honor, or privilege? Notice that it doesn't say we can't have money, only that we can't serve both God and money. But how to discern the difference between having it and it having us? Well, that's the rub, isn't it? One quick way I learned from Rich and from people like my friends at Jesus People USA is to see how easily you can give it away. I'm so glad I got to spend that time with Rich when I did because I was young enough for him to have that kind of influence on me when I was teachable. <laughs> In verse 33, Jesus says, to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. And all these things, everything we need will be given to us as well. What peace that would be, what joy. But notice, it starts with seeking his kingdom, 
Not the kingdom of earthly power or influence. Not the kingdom of comfort or the way things have always been. Not even the kingdom of Christendom or Christian culture and the ability to pray in public like the hypocrites do. But his kingdom, the quiet kingdom that seeks the lost, loves the unlovely, binds up the brokenhearted, and sings beautiful songs in dark places. When we seek that kingdom, we'll find it. And the righteousness we are to seek, it's not our righteousness, it's not self-righteousness, it's his righteousness. The beautiful, lovely, transforming righteousness that he puts on us like a beautiful coat. He will give us everything we need. And the sooner we realize that, the sooner we start seeking that and praying for healing for our eyes and that our ability to discern his goodness will grow sharper and our ability to live in and extend his love to the world will increase, the sooner we will see his kingdom come and his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. All right, I'm climbing off my soapbox now. That's going to do it for this episode of the True Tunes podcast. As always, I need to thank all of our special guests for this massive undertaking and my comrade-in-arms, co-producer and engineer Bruce A. Brown, and special thanks to Bruce Neer for making that old cassette listenable. I also want to thank Bill Maloney for sending us a special instrumental mix of his track, Best Seat in the House. You can find his entire catalog at billmaloneymusic.bandcamp.com, and we'll post the link on the show notes page as well. And another thing, we might honestly not have been talking about any of this today, at least not in the same way, if not for our good friend Mark Hollingsworth, who just announced his retirement from Compassion International. Mark is a dear friend of both Bruce and me, and get this, over his time at Compassion, where he managed their radio ministry, 102,000 children were sponsored around the world as a direct result of his work. And before that, he oversaw the artist sponsorship program, and over 41,000 children were sponsored there. All told, Mark's work generated $270 million in the service of releasing children from poverty in the developing world. Oh, and Mark took 55 trips with different artists, radio station personalities, and other leaders so they could see the work of compassion up close and in person. And one of those trips included none other than Rich Mullins and Rick Elias, who met there in Guatemala, became friends, started a band, and changed everything. So Mark, here's to you. Another of my good and true big brothers on this path, you are a true hero. And if you would like to help us do what we do here, please consider our new Patreon program. For as little as $5 a month, you can really make a major difference for us. You can find the info on the show notes page, and you can find a complete list of the music used on this episode on the show notes page at truetunes.com, where you will also find other relevant links, including a YouTube link of Rich performing at True Tunes in 1990. The contents of the podcast are protected by U.S. copyright law, and it is the intellectual property of Gyroscope Productions with the exception of songs or clips that are from previously copywritten materials. Everything on this episode is used by permission or under fair use provisions. This program is intended for the private use of our listening audience. Gyroscope Productions can be reached at JJT at TrueTunes.com or P.O. Box 60401, Nashville, Tennessee, 37206. Until next time, this is JJT inviting you to listen to better music and listen to music better because the song you hear just might save your life and the song you sing might save the life of the person sitting next to you. Peace.